0: I am neither a socialist nor an accelerationist. All I heard you say was capitalist. Yes. Very often you see that a lot of these beliefs are built on nothing.
1: Everybody's very happy to hear that, David. Thank God. Thank God. Excited to have a very special guest with us today, a uh, political commentator uh, for host of the uh, David Pakman Show. I've been following him for a long time, ladies and gentlemen. David Pakman, welcome to Ami's house.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: I've been a fan of what you've done over the years in building up your audience, and I will tell you this: pre October seventh, I anticipated us having a conversation, and we were going to geek out on politics. I sort of lean a little right of center, and I was excited at one point in time that maybe perhaps you and I would talk about, uh, you know, where we disagree politically on things. But I find that post-October 7th, for me, um, first of all, as a Jew, but in general, just as a person who's trying to be moral and make sense of things since October 7th, that event has been front of mind. And I noticed that you were one of the voices um, sort of in new media that is more maybe perhaps left of center i don't want to be presumptuous about it but you definitely had some flack for voicing some of your views in terms of from people who otherwise were on your side and i'm just curious if you could just give me a a sense of what that's been like for you dealing with uh people subscribers fans who've pushed back and how that's felt uh speaking out in favor of uh generally speaking, Israel, if I, if I got that right, but I'll let you do, uh, the talking. Here.
0: Well, listen, I mean, I'm, I'm in favor of all people who are people operating in good faith, who don't want violence, who, you know, any, anybody who fits that mold, I'm, I'm with you, I'm in favor of you. And the tough thing has been that I'm really threading a fine line where it's sort of like, where exactly are my, contemporaries on this issue because for a long time as someone on the left, I've been the target of horrible anti-Semitic hate from the right. I'm used to that. I expect it overt Nazis, right? I mean like horrible, horrible stuff. And then in addition, now we've got a slice of the left that isn't happy with me because I'm not aggressively enough, unilaterally Uh, and, and in an unrestrained fashion, denouncing Israel as a mere concept of existence. How dare I say it's tough to do a ceasefire with someone that says we will never stop attacking you. I think it's tough to do a ceasefire with a group that says that some people on the left are are angry with me about that. And unfortunately the situation has become one where if I talk about this issue, I'm attacked for not saying the right things. If I don't talk about it, I'm attacked for hiding behind my Judaism and not wanting to call attention to the issue. It's sort of like a lose, lose, lose. And I guess the one thing I'll say that has been positive since October 7th is I was upfront with my audience about what I just told you. Like, this isn't the first time I'm saying this on your show. Uh, and it's sort of a little bit of a dilemma. Um, and I heard from a lot of really great people that I don't normally hear from in my audience. Most of my audience I never hear from, you know, I hear from, from a select group that chooses chooses to get in touch of all the content I consume. I've never emailed any of the hosts in my life, which intuitively tells me there are people out there I don't hear from who maybe are kind of with me. And I heard from a ton of those people when I told my audience about this thing that I'm experiencing and that, that was a really great thing The the, the like-minded thinkers are out there a lot of them are just busy living their lives, working and spending time with family, and they're just not taking the time to write to podcast hosts that they listen to. Mm -hmm. Now, there were a lot
1: of articles that came out. I remember it was sort of describing this reckoning, especially for Jews, but anyone with the far left, Uh, did it surprise you, the pushback
0: that you got in the elements of that slice of the far left that you spoke about? Nope, sadly, no. I mean, there, there have unfortunately been I guess what we would call flare ups in the Israeli Palestinian conflict every two to three years. And th- it's always the exact same thing. We mm-hmm. haven't had something at this scale in a number of different ways in terms of casualties, in terms of media coverage. But it's been basically the same thing where throughout most of the year there's a steady stream of right wing anti Semitic hate that I get. and. When we have these flare ups in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and I talk about it, then we have these big spikes in what I would consider uh, uh, left uh, left wing anti-Semitism.
1: Right. And it's usually centered around Israel as the sort of cover for anti-Semitism from when when the left is leveling it at you or anybody's. Often it is. Yeah. I find that. You know, I remember as people were talking about, people who were left of center warning about the anti-Semitism that was on the rise, sort of in the age of Trump, the tiki torches, the Jews will not replace us. And I right. I always tended to instinctually like downplay that simply because those forces to me, from the way I see it, are not ascendant in the culture. What's really troubling to me when you see it on the slice of the far left is that it's in the areas of culture that we consider mainstream, that we consider elevated, universities, media, uh, even in parts of corporate America. It just seems to be something that, and maybe it's not worth comparing because it's just where the far right and the far left kind of unite around hating Jews. And it, there you can find uh, allies to fight that. But I don't know. Like, I think there's this weird also thing that I'm noticing on the, on the call it the far right, but not, not like the you know, overt neo-Nazis, but people who are now angry at Jews because they're associating Jews as being left-wing and calling out uh, anti-Semitism before where it didn't exist. And they sort of have made their bed. And I'm, I find that very, very bizarre. So they're not down to support Israel because, one, they see Israel as suspect in sort of controlling American foreign policy. And at the same time, they're also they're also saying... Um, uh, you have it coming, Jews, because all you left-wing Jews, ADL folks and people like that who called it out when uh, it was under sort of this Trump derangement syndrome uh, you know uh, accusation, they sort of don't want to have any empathy for the Jewish community now when we're actually seeing or when we're seeing comparable, if not more, anti-Semitism on the
0: left. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, it's hard to... There's a lot of different things there, each of which is probably worthy of a, of a bunch of discussion. I mean, I think one of the things that has been unfortunate for me as someone on the left Mm -hmm. is, you know, uh, as someone myself here who values pluralism, diversity, uh, all of these different values that are important to me as someone of the left, Mm -hmm. uh, to see a double standard where. I have been there in saying, Hey, you know what? I'm not for oppressive identity politics where we use identity as a cudgel to silence. Uh, That's not me. I've never been for that, but I recognize someone's identity informs their experience. And so it's important to listen to people who say, Hey, you know, Here's an experience I've had as a woman in society, which I'm not right. Mm-hmm. So I can read as much about it as I want, but I want to hear from women about that. And we are told we should listen to that. We should value that. Hey, I'm not black. So when black folks say, here's how the way that public transit segregation has affected our community, I want to hear from them as long as they're not trying to silence me with their identity. I want to hear that. I value that. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden to hear some of the same people say. <laughs> you we're not going to listen to you more because you're Jewish. If anything, you're biased. We're not going to listen to you. You have you, you, you can't honestly or, or objectively comment on this because of your identity that violates everything that people like me on the left have stood for for a long time, so that's extraordinarily frustrating mm-hmm. uh, to to see. In other
1: words, everything that qualifies, everything that qualifies other identities to speak about their experience
0: disqualifies Jews. It
1: seems very backwards.
0: Exactly, right. and and I want to be super clear. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about the majority of the people that are kind of in my slice of the left, mm-hmm. and I'm also not addressing in this critique. The the extreme tiki torch right wing anti semitism like we're having a conversation about this particular slice. Mm-hmm. This is a frustration I have with it. Mm-hmm. How, how has that changed
2: your relationship to your viewers? So you you know you sort of build this community of people who love hearing from you, and now some of that community doesn't want to hear from you anymore, does it? Has it made you rethink who you're speaking to? I mean, I, I know you lost you lost a couple of subscriptions.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen. We probably saw five or 600 people cancel paid memberships, but we had about 1500 people start new ones. And so this isn't just a calculation. It's not a, this isn't only a financial calculation, but I consider that it is a reflection of the mood of my audience. Right. So there was this initial significant blowback from those who said, how am I not towing what they believe is supposed to be the party line? on this issue. Fine. So we took a bunch of losses there. I then told my audience, Hey, this is going on. My view on this issue is informed by being a progressive. I'm not abandoning progressivism in this view. These are the values I'm talking about. I have to apply them to this situation as well. And then we saw the, the kind of counterpoint where a lot of people said, I didn't realize this was going on. I want to come out and, and support you. I think my relationship to the audience hasn't changed in this way. I still do every story just the way I want to do it. And what I say on my show is absolutely what I think and, and there's no calculated position that I'm taking Mm. in order to prevent some negative effect or, or whatever. I'm just talking about what I want to talk about and giving my genuine and honest view. Mm-hmm.
1: So thank God he's still doing well. He's still doing well.
0: And I'm sure <laughs> everybody's very happy to hear that, David. Thank God.
1: Thank God. <laughs> um, from your community, you know, we're very happy to see that. You know, 1,500 to 600 is very nice. Um, but I will say, I how do you, how do you having a kind of understand, like a lot of times people of uh, on different ends of the political spectrum, really have trouble even understanding each other, especially as we find ourselves today, just in terms of, you know like the intentions that people have and what's going on psychologically with someone you might politically disagree with but at this level you know these were people in your audience that resonated with you and i'm like you said you're making this case for being pro israel from a progressive standpoint from the fact that you're drawing these clear moral distinctions here on you know, Israel's enemies versus Israel itself and while itself, and while Israel is flawed and makes mistakes, there's a very clear moral difference between Israel and its enemies. So what do you think is going on? Because I've heard plenty of people on the right make their, uh, you know, analysis and critique of what's going on on campus. But I'm curious, someone with your perspective on it, like what do you think is motivating these people in the name of human rights, in the name of progressivism supporting
0: Hamas? It's not even two states anymore. It's Hamas. First, to be clear, I've really not heard from too many people who I can honestly say are supporting Hamas. Mm -hmm. I think more common is people who are willing to look the other way about how Hamas stands for the opposite of all of the progressive values I stand for. So I would soften it a little bit. I don't deny there are pro Hamas people out there. Mm -hmm. It's not the majority of the people I'm interacting with. So that's really all I can tell you as far as that goes. In terms of the answers to what's what this is all rooted in, I start from a place of charity and benefit of the doubt. I sympathize with the idea that if you identify oppression that's going on, there's an understandable instinct to try to right that oppression and to try to defend the oppressed makes perfect sense, right? We're starting from a place that makes a lot of sense to me in the folks I talk to, the people that have called into my show and who say, I don't like what Biden's been doing on this issue or whatever the case may be. And I explore it with them. Sometimes there's a lack of factual knowledge. They they don't know a Mm -hmm. bunch of the facts about the history of the region. There's this new poll that finds 20% of 18 to 29 year olds think the Holocaust was was a myth Mm -hmm. that it didn't actually happen it's hard when you lack the factual basis to come to the right conclusions because if the inputs are junk, the output is, is probably going to be junk. Mm. I think that in some left wing circles, not the ones I operate in, but they exist. There's these litmus tests and one litmus test is if there are two groups in a conflict, if one of the groups is perceived as not being white. And remember, whether Jews are white depends on who you ask. You're, you ask the right wing anti Semites, they go, no, 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 Jews are definitely not white. But mm-hmm. there's something else. So putting that aside <laughs> for a second, the litmus test requires that you say the non white population must be the oppressed one, or there are those who are generally speaking just contrarians about American foreign policy. If the United States is allied with Israel. Israel must be uniquely and and uh, unambiguously in the wrong period and no further analysis is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I could go on it. I don't think it's one thing for everybody that comes to a different conclusion than I do. With some people, it's that they don't have all the information. With others, it's that they're buying into certain litmus tests that I prefer to try to exit and think more critically about. Mm-hmm. Depends on who you're talking to. Yeah, I, I definitely uh I was able to be more gracious
1: for that and generous to that perspective pre-October 7th. And I kind Mm. of felt like after that, seeing the footage, seeing the celebration of such atrocities, it seemed to be to me that if you don't know where you stand on this, after witnessing that, I feel like your moral compass is broken. You're not just misinformed, but you have a warped sort of sense of whether it's ideologically driven or a sense of, I don't know, do you think that, you know, I bring up Jordan Peterson a lot because I do impressions of him. But one of the things he talks about is, you know, when the left goes too far, you know, and identifying that. Do you think that there's a something to be said that's fair about left wing movements, in particular? I mean, I guess it goes far right, far left. But the history of this idea of under the name of revolution, under the name of resistance, under the guise of that, we can justify and apologize for all kinds of atrocity. Like this idea isn't new. You look at like. I don't know, Che Guevara and, and those kind of revolutions in the past where it turns out later on Stalin, it turns out later on there was all this atrocity and now we see it full on but in the name of some sort of idea, abstract idea of revolution or resistance against the oppressor, it becomes virtuous. And it's not just the barbarians yeah. that mix, commit these acts. It's the people and and all of these like atrocities of the 20th, of the 20th century, they started in the, the intelligentsia sort of creating these ideas that we are purifying society. These people believe they're doing something good. And that's what's really troubling to me. Do you have any thoughts on that as far as
0: well i I don't know that uh, I'll answer while clarifying that I don't necessarily agree with the entire framework you've kind of teed up there, but mm. but here's what i I, I will say um, I do Busted. Yeah. I am neither a socialist <laughs> I am neither a socialist nor an accelerationist. uh socialism, I think people more or less understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Accelerationism being the idea that you sort of need to burn things down and worsen them in order to precipitate building them back up in the way that you want to see them. You know, I I've been doing a lot of research on accelerationism for a book that I'm writing and the way I see the biggest advancements in history, certainly in the United States and also successful progressive movements around the world, including uh, Northern Europe and, and others, the biggest successes have come from well-regulated capitalist economies that make incremental change in the right direction. So that's my view. That view is not nearly radical enough for mm. some of the people that, that are out there right now. All I heard you say was capitalist. Yes. Just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> so, so, well, I mean, listen, social, Denmark is a capitalist country, right? Mm. Sweden, these are capitalist countries that say, we'll use the taxes we collect to make sure no one's standard of living goes too low, which sounds eminently reasonable mm. to me. But I think my point is I try not to go around Defending movements that aren't mine unless there's a very specific reason to do so, so my view on accelerationism and and the sort of thing you're talking about is I don't believe history points to that being the way to improve society
1: mm-hmm. yes this you mean an accelerationism just to define it one more time. The extreme sort of burning down of all the institutions and trying to build it back up is just is almost utopian and almost and and inevitably bloody
0: and uh and violent. You don't even have to. It's I, the way I define accelerationism is let's accelerate the worsening of society oh. in order to then get some kind of clean slate or place where we can rebuild it in our image. Sometimes mm. those on the revolutionary left say we should make capitalism as bad as possible rather than like me as a social Democrat, I want to improve capitalism so it works better. Mm. Accelerationist revolutionaries would say Let's allow capitalism to get as bad as possible, because then it will collapse, and we can rebuild society the way they want to do it. Mm-hmm. I don't believe there's a historical reason to think that works. Uh, that sounds dark, very dark, <laughs> uh,
1: very nihilistic, almost. I yeah. mean,
0: yeah, yeah. So no, I,
2: I hear why um, you know someone who's watching the news wouldn't have enough information to to, to necessarily reach the right conclusions. I've had a, a sort of a personal falling out. Um, They don't know it, but, um, you know, uh, an independent news channel that that I was really relying on to to really, like, explain the world to me for probably since Trump got elected, um, I found that they also don't seem to have the facts, they, 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 they also seem to sort of have applied the perspective that they used to explain American politics now to Israeli politics or to what's going on in the Middle East. You know, yeah. How do you explain journalists who, who sort of come to wildly different conclusions than it seems like we've come to on this issue?
0: Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that I have any kind of catch all explanation. I do think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Argentina mm. and I think one of the things that's very obvious to me as someone who closely follows the politics of both the U S and of Argentina is that sometimes different situations require different judgments. And so here in the United States, I have not had a situation since I've been a voting age where I really considered voting for a Republican presidential candidate. I think the least offensive since I've been voting were people like John McCain and Mitt Romney, but I still had options that I felt were better for me at that time. In Argentina, I've talked with my audience. There was recently a presidential election there where the two predominant candidates were someone from from the left, Christina Kirchner, corruption uh, wing, which very, you know, on the left, but I couldn't seriously consider voting for. And then this guy, Miley, who Tucker Carlson loves and he's cloned a bunch of dogs and he has a bunch <laughs> of crazy ideas that will never happen Olé. and I couldn't vote for that. <laughs> so if I were voting in Argentina, I said to my audience, I would vote for a, a female candidate whose last name is Bullrich, who's like a center right. She's like a Romney or a McCain mm. in that environment. My judgment would be different because of the decades of corruption, the problems with the other candidates in the United States. I never was in a position where that seemed like the best option to me. So I think that one of the things that is not happening is, as you point out, that situations are being thoroughly analyzed for their own merits, but rather different uh, values or analyses are sometimes being applied where they may not be completely accurate.
1: Mm And when in trying to view, you mean like situations in Israel through like a domestic lens and apply the same sort of social yes. problems that we have here yeah. to completely different situations.
2: And Indeed. The, hey, I mean, I guess, and then someone on your side of the of the of the screen, then like, you know. So, I mean, I'll I'll just tell you who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Crystal and Cigar. Who um, And I'm, I, I don't mean them, they're the people that I listen to, but I'm sure it applies to like a lot of different independent news channels. You know, I'm wondering how it feels on, on your side of the desk where you come out with a certain perspective and then you just see your numbers go up and up and up and up and up. And then, I mean, do you get captured by that? And then it becomes, let's just say you do change your mind. You do get a new piece of information that changes it. How hard is it then to pivot and go, you know what, like we actually kind of got that wrong. I, I, I think we have a different perspective now. Is that like even possible at any point?
0: Audience, I mean, listen, I, I, uh, well, let me, let me put it this way. There's some media figures out there who sometimes in their late thirties, early forties have purported to have complete one eighties in their political views. I find it very tough to see that as genuine. I see it as either. You must have really been clueless for the first 30 something years of your life or there's some kind of audience capture or financial incentive. So I'm really skeptical of these broad total one eighties that people do changing your mind about specific issues. I mean, listen, I had one view about new nuclear power eight years ago. I've since learned a lot more about it. I'm not a nuclear advocate now, but I don't really have concerns that if we built new nuclear, it would be the most dangerous, unsafe thing in the world. The technology has changed. My view changed on that. At one point I assumed GMO foods must be unhealthy for us. Turns out there's not actually good evidence of that. So I I changed my view. It's not a 180 in my entire value system, but I got new information. So so I changed my view with regard to watching the numbers and adjusting my view on. I I certainly don't do that. Mm. What I will sometimes do, though, is if I see that there's certain topics I'm touching on and my audience just isn't interested one way or the other, it's just getting nobody cares one way or the other. I might rethink, is this the best use of my time if no one's interested in what I have to say about it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about just the, um, just shifting a little bit into being able to cultivate your own audience in sort of the space we find. There's been that de- this debate that's been going on for a long time about new media versus legacy media and, uh, you know, your ability to have done that. Do you find that, like, in the space now we're in a, like, the state of journalism today and the state of... Uh, you see a lot of words get thrown out there, you know, the expertise, uh, bias, uh, disinformation, misinformation is, is, is the saturation of, of all the fields that we find ourselves in, in media, in art and everything that everyone is able to kind of have their own broadcasting abilities. Uh, is that an overall, a good thing? I would imagine you land on the side of being in favor of having your own audience that you've built, but where do you stand on, um, the sort of double-edged sword of everyone being able to broadcast their takes?
0: Yeah, I mean, my view is basically one that Neil Postman wrote about in his book Technopoly decades ago, which is whenever you have these new technologies, uh we have this instinct to try to say is it a net good, is it a net net, net bad? Should we try to prevent it altogether? Now this conversation's happening around AI, at one point it was social media, at one point it was the internet more generally. I have a little bit more of a fatalist view, which is I don't think we're going to prevent these things. I mean, this is the reality. This is what it is. So I want to think about how do we make the balance as as much weighted to the good side as possible. And so in the net, I think that independent media, the ability to be able to grow a following without needing access to uh, radio transmitters or television towers, I think it's a fantastic thing. I think it then also places a burden on society to say, we've got to teach people critical thinking. We've got to teach people media literacy. We need to do everything we can to equip individuals to be able to judge what can you trust and what can you not trust? That's a big responsibility. I don't think it's happening to the, de- the degree that it should, but I come down on, we're not going to prevent it. This is the technology that's here. There's a lot of great what can we do to limit the downside
1: yeah in other words like the tide in the ocean that we're on is shifted this way we're on the ship so now we have to just navigate it you're not going the other way Absolutely. you can't fight the ocean so to speak yeah but on the issue of critical thinking i mean like you said before that some people are missing not only factual information but the ability to assess information if they were to get it whether it's about sure. israel or anything else i find that a lot of the a lot of the uh, uh, you know schisms and breakdowns that are happening in people being able to dialogue and engage with each other is that people have completely lost the ability to assess impartially information or evaluate things based on their ideas back to what right. you said earlier about you said something about um you know I, I'm okay with identity as long as it's not oppressing my ability to speak and that people's identity is is valid insofar as they have an experience to share um and I'm curious about this whole uh Uh, state of the marketplace of ideas where identity politics, you're saying there is some merit there because people can share their personal experience. And do you feel like that's uh, missing from sort of the right of center when it comes to intellectual debate that it's everything is data. Everything is facts. Don't care about your feelings. Um, And it's sort of missing this sort of sense of denying people's experiences because the data shows this. And therefore we're, we're creating these talking cross purposes here. And when when difficult subjects come up, whether it's Israel, whether it's civil rights, any of these social issues that we're dealing with, what do you see have been the most constructive ways to have conversations with people you really fundamentally disagree with?
0: I mean, so first of all, I've not seen a deluge of data from the right in the conversations I've had, but your experience may be different. Mm. Um, my... Bust it again. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My positive uh, experiences usually come from just, you know, a Socratic method of questioning. And very mm-hmm. often you see that a lot of these beliefs are built on nothing. We, we go to Trump rallies and we'll interview some of the people outside the Trump rallies. And you know, they'll say, I believe Joe Biden did not really win in 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why, why do you believe that? Uh, well, more people voted in Wisconsin than the number of registered voters. Okay. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Here's the population of Wisconsin. Here's the number of people that voted more millions more people live in Wisconsin than the number that voted. Oh yeah, but they, they brought it to court and courts found that there was fraud. Nope, they didn't. There were seven cases in Wisconsin. They were all thrown out. Well, but they threw them out because the judges were biased. Well, actually the judges, most of them were actually selected by Donald Trump. So you're saying the Trump uh, and you see that there's nothing. It's like when you pour water on cotton candy, And there's just like nothing. It just disappeared. You're like, where did it go? There was cotton candy here. Now there's nothing there continuing to ask and say, why do you believe that? Where did you learn that? Where did you? It's the most effective tool I've seen at getting people to reconsider why they believe the things they believe.
1: Right? Well, each side of the political spectrum, the right and the left don't have a monopoly on their ill-informed members, right? I mean, there's there's plenty of people you go to a, a Trump rally who you can easily unpack as not really and reveal that they're they're not really knowledgeable on the facts of a situation. I've seen plenty of right wing media personalities do the same thing, asking a series of questions where people kind of can't make sense of a consistent thread of ideas. Um, but I, I find that I when I was referring to like, you know, your experience, because you've you one of these people who who have people you disagree with on your show uh, very often. Uh, Yaron Brook, sure. you've had on from the Enron Institute. You've had on you've had on Ben Shapiro, yes? Have you guys had conversations? Yep, it's been a while, but yeah. I have. But, you know, there is a, res- you know, I think back to the days of my early education and a lot of this stuff was watching, you know, Milton Friedman's Free to Choose and he would have a roundtable discussion back in the day of people sitting around who essentially disagreed on policy. Like they had similar in um goals in terms of wanting to make society better wanting to improve systems wanting to improve and have progress and there were yeah. really differing views on how to do that a lot of it was pragmatic i feel like that's where you live in the world of like you know show me i don't want to re- tear the system down i want to improve on things i want to be pragmatic and that's completely lost today i don't feel like i don't know i feel like besides the conversations i've seen you have with people and the occasional things maybe it's getting better but um yeah it can make you feel a little bit You know, when you see, especially in younger people and at universities, you're not seeing a a marketplace of ideas. You're seeing, uh, you're seeing, uh, you know, everything making group identity paramount and oppression, Olympics, and a lot of this stuff. I don't know. So, do you do you feel hopeful that it will eventually come to that, where people will come back to this idea of judging things based on their merit, based on their ideas, based on the we all have good intentions and we just want to have better policies.
0: Well, here's what I'll say about that. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic. That if we properly fund education, if we reintroduce critical thinking classes right starting right. early, probably at age 10, 11, if, if we do the things I've laid out, I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get back to a place where, hey, we might disagree about what the top tax rate would be, but we don't disagree that the candidate who got the most votes should become the president. And that we don't disagree about the pillars of democracy, we disagree about policy and how to improve the system we have. I would like to get back to that unless we really fund education properly and rethink how we're approaching some of these issues. It won't happen, but I remain hopeful that it will. Well,
1: how can people make contributions to your campaign, Mr. Pacman? That would be
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I can never be president right. because I was born in Argentina unless they change the law for uh, Arnold and then I can benefit from it. I can never be president. <laughs> never but, be president. Uh, is a total fraud. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but my content's at davidpacman.com. So All right. I'll you can you find
1: that. David Pakman at davidpacman.com. Thank you for joining us here at Ami's House and sharing your ideas. I love the stuff that you do. We don't agree on. A lot of things, but the fact that you engage with the other side, I think, is a lost art. And uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us here at Ami's house, David. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: And happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. I didn't say that. Happy Hanukkah.